You will find a truth like no other in this journey of life. Finding God like you never really have known. And if you do know God, you will find yourself falling deeply in love and so very close to Him, if only you will listen. So then, faith comes by hearing and hearing from the Word of God, Romans 10:17. Faith in God means believing in and trusting in the greatness of hope. That God became man, that God lived a perfect life, that God died a sacrificial death for your sins and rose again to glory so that you could have eternal life by the transforming power of the Holy Spirit by, in, and through His only begotten Son, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. One can come to faith only through hearing the gospel. And the specific message that must be heard is the word of Christ. That is, the good news about Jesus Christ as the crucified and risen Savior. Romans 8.33 reminds us that it is God who justifies. So faith is not something we can accomplish on our own. If we could reach out and take faith for ourselves, by ourselves, we would be able to save ourselves. And that contradicts scripture and our need for a savior. Christ died for sinners like you and I, taking their punishment for their sins, offering forgiveness and raising you and I to a new life. When heard through this proclamation, the meaning of faith becomes clear to the hearer. Faith is confidence not in our ability to do good works, but in that meritorious work, that ability that what Christ did when he lived on this earth, on the cross, on Calvary. Many lay dead in their sins while they live here on earth because the message of the gospel has been neglected in churches today. Many congregations hear the drumbeat of works, works, and works, of grace, grace, and grace, of love, love, and love. The church, in many respects, has become a business built upon the backs of its memberships, and the flock despairs because they are oppressed by programs and works, but have not heard the life-giving message that Jesus Christ has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself as expressed in Hebrews 9.25. This emphasis on works over grace is not new. In fact, it is the ongoing struggle of the church in the world today. Faith in action according to Hebrews 11 is an expressive oratory of the great ones of the faith and it wasn't by works but their faith was expressed in the good that they did so let us begin now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see this is what the ancients were commanded to do by faith we understand that the universe was formed by God's command we don't need proof we believe it to be true. 
so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. And by faith, he was commended as righteous. When God spoke well of his offering, and by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead, he still speaks today to our hearts if only we will listen. You see, it is by faith that Enoch himself was taken from this life so that he did not ever experience death in the flesh. He just could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And you see, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Then by faith, Noah, when he was warned about things not yet seen, and in holy fear built an ark to save his family. And it was by his faith that he was commended and he became the heir of the righteousness that is in keeping in line with faith, believing in what you cannot see. You see, and by faith, Abraham, in which the scriptures proclaim he is the father of our faith. When he was called to go to a place that he would later receive as his inheritance, he obeyed and he went, even though he did not know where he was even going. And by faith, he made his home in that promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac, as did Jacob, who were both heirs with him of that same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, who architect and builder is God. You see, and it was by faith that Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made that promise. And so, from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things completely promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers here on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. And yet, instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them, for me and for you. And it was by faith that Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise him from the dead. And in so, in a manner of speaking, he did receive indeed Isaac back from the death. By faith, 
Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their entire future. And it was by faith that Jacob, when he was dying, he blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his own bones. And it was by faith that Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's commands. And it was by faith that Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy those fleeting pleasures of sin for a season. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of the greater value than the treasures of all of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. And by faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who was invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the application of the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. They were terminated by God's mighty hand. By faith the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. By faith the prostitute Rahab, because she was welcomed the spies of God, she was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall we say, church? We do not have time to tell about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Japheth, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administrated justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weaknesses were turned into strength, and who became powerful in battle and defeated foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and mockings and floggings, and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins. They were destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. <laughs> the world was not worthy of them, as it is not worthy of you. They wandered in the deserts and in the mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith by God, yet not one of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better. Better for us, better for me, better for you. That only together with us would they be made perfected. And if you take this journey, this simple journey of 365 days towards your total freedom in Christ Jesus, I promise you, you will never be the same. And it will only draw you closer to Abba Father. And if you want to take it a little further, 
and you want to hear it all in a short period of time, you can do that. In a day and a half, you will consume 365 days worth of God's glory by just hearing. And your faith will rise within you and you will be the very glory of the Father here on earth so that all may see. God bless you. A promise is a firm decision to do or not to do something. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jodah, do you love me more than these? Words of Jesus found in John chapter 21, verse 15. Jesus has a wonderful way of restoring us when we fail him. And he doesn't humiliate us. He does not criticize us. He does not ask us to make our promises to him or to try harder. He simply takes us aside and asks us to reaffirm our love for him. And of course, part of that love for him is through our actions of obedience. Peter miserably failed his Lord when he fled with many of the other disciples from the Garden of Gethsemane. Later, he publicly denied that he even knew Jesus. Peter must have had wondered if he had been capable of being Jesus' disciple when he was unfaithful to Jesus in his most critical hour. You may be painfully aware that you have failed your Lord in many ways. I know I have. And perhaps you were not faithful. Perhaps you disobeyed his word. Perhaps you denied him by the way you lived your life. Jesus will take you aside as he did Peter. He will not berate you. He will not belittle you. He will not make you feel less than. He will simply be Jesus to you. You know, Peter must have wondered if he had been capable of even being in the presence of Jesus. But we have all done this. We have all been to the cross and in many ways have denied his glory by our thoughts, by our speech, by the practice of sin. And you know, maybe you denied him just like Peter did. And, but the key is that Jesus will always take us aside. He will ask you to examine your love for him. He asked Peter, do you love me? And if your answer is like Peter's, is yes, Lord, he will reaffirm his will for you. If you truly love him, you will obey what he tells you to do. And see, Jesus doesn't need your recommitments or your promises to try harder. Those things only come out of pride because you got busted for sinful things. But he does take great joy in just a simple question. Jesus does ask for your love. And if you truly love him, your service for him from this day forward, you can give him the quality that he deserves. Never let sin take you away from the narrow way. Let sin drive you to the narrow way, to the feet of Jesus. 
And if you have to seek forgiveness one million and one times, but you struggle and you fight and you resist and you do all that you can, you are on the right track. Never give up on Jesus. He's never given up on you. Woe is me. When you think about this woe is me, there are some prevalent issues that are found in our holy word that speaks of woe is me. Coming to mind is Isaiah chapter 6 verse 5. So I said woe is me for I am undone because I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. An exalted view of God brings a clear view of sin and a realistic view of self. A diminished view of God brings a reduced concern for sin and an inflated view of self. Isaiah may have been satisfied with his personal holiness, that is, until he saw the Lord in His unspeakable glory. Isaiah's encounter with a holy God made him immediately and keenly aware of his own unholiness and the sinfulness of those around him. It is impossible to worship God and remain unchanged. The best indication that we have truly is a change of heart. Have we so conformed ourselves to a sinful world that we are satisfied with unholy living? Have we sunk so far below God's standard that when someone does live as God intended, we consider that person super spiritual if we only compare our personal holiness to those around us? we may be deceived into believing that we are living a consecrated life. Yet when we encounter a holy God, our only response can be, Woe is me. You will not see those around you trusting Jesus until they have recognized and have come to understand that there is a clear difference between you and the rest of the world. God wants to sanctify you as He is holy. When God deals with you, there will be a radical degree of purity about your life that is absolutely different from the world's standards and what they can produce. The world, including those closest to you, will be convinced you serve a holy God by your consecrated life. have hope. All who have this hope in Christ will purify themselves just as Christ is pure. 1 John 3, 3. Much like the love chapter of 1 Corinthians 13, the third chapter of 1 John focuses mostly on the concept of love, and this type of love births true hope 
towards God, securing a destiny that purifies our lives right now. When we know our end is to be more like Jesus, it makes us want to be more like Jesus right now. And this anticipation can have a spectacular purifying effect in our lives. It makes us want to be ready to be serving Him in this lifetime, to be pleasing Him right now. Love and hope in this measure are life-giving. Ultimately, our hope is not in heaven or our glory in heaven. Our faith is in Him. We must never set our expectations on other things, not on a relationship, not on success, not on possessions, or directly just on ourselves. Our only real hope is in Jesus. Because of His love, God not only calls us His children, He makes us His children. John also explains how sin, including hate, is never the result of a proper relationship with God. Christians, in contrast to the world, are supposed to do more than feel love. We are to act on it as well because believers have hope and anticipate being with Jesus for all of eternity. We pursue a pure life. The goal of living a chaste life is to be like Christ. Purity is a strong theme in the New Testament. In Matthew 5, 8, Jesus taught, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Paul sought to present believers as a pure virgin to Christ. 2 Corinthians 11, 2. 1 Peter 3, 2 speaks of the pure conduct a believer should pursue, which stands out to unbelievers. The amazing love of God is what makes us pure, enabling us to become sons and daughters. And we become God's children. An immediate transformation, not one that must be worked on, not one that has to be earned, but one that is a supernatural miracle by the hand of God as he joins us into a personal relationship with himself by his own doing. Dare to believe is a dare that makes a difference. But Daniel proposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies. Words found in Daniel chapter 1 verse 8. Would you dare to believe that God who called you to himself and equipped you with his Holy Spirit could work mightily through you? Would you dare to believe that? Have you made the connection between the time and place in which you live and God calls upon you? World events never catch God by surprise. He placed you precisely where you are for a purpose right where you stand now. Daniel did not let the temptations of his day interfere with his relationship with the Lord. He knew that to make his life useful to God, he must be obedient in all things. 
as you and I need to be. Regardless of what the most powerful king in the world commanded, Daniel refused to compromise what he knew God required of him. History is replete with examples of Christian men and women who believe that God would work through them to make a significant difference for his kingdom. God placed Esther strategically in the king's court at a critical time when she could save the lives of God's people, as spoken in Esther chapter 4, verse 14. God placed Joseph strategically to become the most powerful advisor to the Pharaoh in Egypt and to save Jacob and his family from a devastating drought, Genesis 41, 39 through 40. Are you allowing your surroundings to determine how you invest your life in the kingdom of God? Or are you letting God use you to make a difference in your generation? Ask God to reveal His purposes for you and His will for your life today. And then you can speak as Daniel spoke because he proposed in his heart that he would not defile himself, and so must you and I. You are accepted. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 6. From verses 3 through 14, of Ephesians, you will find praises towards God for the blessings he has provided as the Apostle Paul ties together the ideas of predestination, of God's glory, of salvation of his people, and rights we have as children of God being a fourfold meaning to the words, I am accepted. You and I blessed because God chose before creation, to save you and I. That salvation came at a significant cost, the death of Jesus Christ. As children of God, we can be confident that God will give us what He has promised, namely, an eternity with Him in heaven. You and I, because of the love of God made to be accepted in the beloved of God being the truth, of what it means to be highly favored of God and full of grace, a gift that is granted to every believer because of God's grace. As the Father completely accepted Jesus in the fullness of all his character, of all his words, all his work, and now through this born-again experience, you and I are recognized in the Beloved as was Jesus. Apostle Paul realized this plan of love, grace, and mercy by saying, by the giving of the law, God's justice and holiness were rendered most glorious by the giving of the gospel. His grace and mercy are made equally glorious. God's plan and His grace and mercy is often rejected because it glorifies God and His grace and not the effort or achievement of mankind. It is the work by which God makes us accepted in the Beloved and not by any attempt of some man-centered religious action. This 
act of choosing believers in advance to become a part of God's family contributes to the praises of God's glorious grace. God does all things for His own glory. This includes His advanced planning of those who will become His children that should cause every believer a moment of pause. Consider that God, who created all things, specifically chose before the creation of the world that we would be created, that we would live, and that we would become a child of God and one day stay with God for eternity by a free will choice that He gifted us starting from the Garden of Eden. This grace is a powerful gift, a blessing given to us by God's own hand. Do you tremble at God's word? But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word, words spoken by the prophet Isaiah, chapter 66, verse 2. Do you tremble when God speaks? When was the last time physically affected by the reality that the Almighty God just spoke directly to you? John lost all physical strength when God spoke to him in Revelation chapter 1 verse 17. Paul fell to the ground when Christ met him on the road to Damascus as spoken in Acts chapter 9 verse 4. Moses trembled when God spoke to him, Acts chapter 7 verse 32. And Peter, when he realized who Jesus was, fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord, Luke chapter 5 verse 8. Have you lost your sense of awe that the Creator still chooses to speak to you? Do you approach the reading of your Bible with a holy expectation, listening for the life-changing words that God has for you for that particular day and all the tomorrows to come? Did you know that Scripture says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. There are things you will see and hear out of your fear and reverence for God that you will not experience any other way. As you study your Bible, you may sense that God has something to say directly to you through the verses you are reading. Take a moment to consider the awesome reality that God who spoke and created a universe is now speaking to you. If Jesus could speak and raise the dead, calm a storm, cast out demons, and heal those that needed healing, then what effect might a word from God have upon your life? The possibilities should cause you to tremble the next time you open God's word. Do so with a sense of holy expectation. I am that I am. Along this journey of the narrow way, God will allow you to touch upon the world's view of himself, your view of him, and even my view of him. But all this must be viewed in the light that will shine so bright for anyone who is genuinely seeking the truth. You know, we all are on a fantastic journey. A fantastic journey with the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. 
I myself have been on this journey for six decades. And see, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob are words spoken of in the Exodus teachings and the same words Jesus did express when he was teaching about the resurrection of the dead, of God's people. Names have such a unique purpose in the discovery of God's holy word, like that of Abraham used in our text as a, a, a contradiction meaning, meaning of a multitude. And then we have Isaac having a, a meaning of origin and popularity, or, or that of Jacob meaning in the Hebrew to follow, unfolding for you and I today a, a message that is so personal from a loving, living Breathing, holy God, I am the God of a multitude, the God of your origins, and the God of all who follow me. From Exodus chapter 3 verse 6 to Matthew chapter 22 verse 32, we find some 40 other verses that speak of the God of our forefathers. Words that speak from God's own Holy Spirit. The Ruha Elohim from within, saying deep into our hearts, God is also the God of Susan, the God of Bill, the God of Anthony, the God of John, the God of you. You and I serve a personal God that proclaims, I am the God of a multitude, the God of your origin, and the God of all who follow my way. This same God wants you and I to call him Abba Father. The most unique name of all. A name I have often used when speaking to God and speaking about God to God's people. Abba is a title of reverence and it is a very comfortable, intensely intimate childlike term used by Jesus and Paul to address God in a relation of personal intimacy with his born-again children, you and I. A word interpreted as either Papa or Daddy. It is relevant and authentic to understand that God is our intimate Father. So many places in the New Testament make this vividly and encouragingly clear. It is one of the precious qualities that makes Christianity distinct from all other faiths and philosophies. There are many ways we could portray God to get people to like Him. We could represent God as a faithful companion and a true friend. We could emphasize Bible texts showing that God could be one's best buddy. We could choose worship songs that make us think of God as a warm and fuzzy, close and cuddly friend, but we must not create a God in our image or in the image desired by the people around us. Instead, it is essential to present God as he revealed himself in Scripture, teaching us that Abba Father is a God of the people and for the people, and he has plans for you and I. It is a plan involving a Savior who provides forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God. It is a plan that offers you decades of time and eternity to come that unfolds the prophetic promises of Jeremiah 29 verse 11. 
For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. The Bible is our authoritative source for knowing God as he is. It is God's revelation of himself. And you and I will feast upon this richness. For this is not your typical gospel presentation, is it? It's a call that proclaims, come and follow Jesus. Even if you face the loss of friends, family, reputation, career, and possibly even your life. It is a call that many have never taken, for today we can hardly find such a teaching. But we can discover instruction that produces a large number of false converts today. Christ never offered wealth, fame, and world power, or even a, a world of peace. But he did offer this to you and I. Take up your cross and follow me. It is a call that does say, if there comes the point in your life where you must face the ultimate choice, Jesus or the comforts of this life, which will you choose? Commitment to Christ means taking up your cross daily, giving up your hopes, your dreams, your possessions, even your very life, if need be, for the cause of Christ. Only if you willingly take up your cross, oh, only if you willingly take up your cross, may you and I be called his disciple. It is the cost of discipleship. Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his or her father and mother and spouse and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his or her own life, they cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry his or her cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Which of you, wishing to build a home, does not first sit down and count the cost to see if you have the resources to complete it. These are powerful words found in Luke 14 verses 26 through 28. So if you are ready to learn who you are in the hands of God, letting go of the traditions of mankind, taking up your cross, then take my hand and let the Holy Spirit in me teach you through me to follow the way, the way of the cross of Christ being the real way of Christianity. I am the way and the truth and the life, said Jesus. God often leads us to passions through suffering, experienced or perceived. As you consider your scars on this journey, hopefully desire begins to arise out of your darkest moments to seek a greater intimacy with God. Christ. 
and also an excellent summary of the gospel truth of who you are in Christ. So many spiritual honors given to all believers solely on the basis of being part of this holy family. Becoming a child of God doesn't merely result in privileges but of spiritual power. Faith in the name of Jesus means trust in his person, in his sacrifice, and in his salvation. This is not for absolutely everyone, however, because this verse specifies that the power or the right is only extended to those who receive him. And so it is, your story in the hands of God is not a story of tragedy and rejection, but a story of grace and acceptance. It is a story of you and I receiving Jesus and the fullness of God's love. We need to embrace and receive Jesus in his fullness as he accepted you and I in the fullness of our sin-filled lives, taking it all away and giving himself unto ourselves. Faith is described as receiving Jesus. Apostle John reminded us of the nature of our rebirth and those who receive Jesus are born of God and not of human effort. This new birth is something that brings change to the life of every believer. So now you can proclaim, I am a child of God.
Religious activity apart from fellowship with God is empty rituals. The people of Jeremiah's day were satisfied to have the ritual without the manifest presence of God. They become so comfortable with their religion that they didn't even notice God's absence. It is possible to pray, to attend a worship service, or to give an offering and yet not be have any experience with the presence of God in your life. And that has been the sad commentary on many a Christian experience. Don't settle for a religious life that lacks a relationship with Jesus Christ. When God is present, the difference will be obvious.
he writes that we are heirs with Christ if we suffer with Christ in order to be glorified with Christ. In other words, we are heirs with Christ since we suffer or will suffer with him. What does it mean to suffer with Christ? It includes the idea that Christians can expect to be persecuted for our close identity with Christ according to the words spoken in John 15 verse 20. It also refers to what Paul wrote earlier that to put our faith in Jesus is to be so closely associated with him that we die to sin on a spiritual level as spoken in Romans 6 verses 5 through 8. And this suffering is the suffering that Jesus experienced in his daily life in a sin-ravaged world, something that every person lives through. Paul describes this universal groaning of existence in verses 22 and 23. Those in Christ, however, suffer with him on their way to being glorified with him once this life has ended. For Christians, suffering in this life is never meaningless. Romans 5 verses 3 through 5 explain this to us. God's children are not immune from trials and suffering. In fact, our sharing in present suffering is a condition of our future glorification with Christ. As far as God is concerned, it's all part of the same package of sonship or daughtership. No matter how much our flesh may want to have the inheritance and the glory without the suffering, because we are in Christ, we have the privilege of relating to the Father as Jesus does. Therefore, we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And this means there is no condemnation for those in Christ. And nothing will ever be able to separate us from his love. Having believed the gospel, we now live in the spirit of God. That allows us to call God Abba Father. We suffer with Christ, and we suffer along with all creation while we wait for God to reveal us as his sons and daughters. With the help of the Holy Spirit, we are confident that God is for us and loves us in Christ, and all about was mine, for the Father had laid it in my hand. I said, the little sparrows overhead and the fish in the sea given to me with a smile from above. This was the world, and I was king. For me, the bees came by to sing. For me, the swallows flew. And for me, the fish shined all for me. God is looking for clay vessels. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord? 
Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Words found in Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 6. God knows how to bring salvation to your family, your friends, your community, and your world. Accordingly, he looks for those who will allow him to shape them into the instruments he requires to do his divine work. Clay has no plans of its own, no aspirations of service, nor reluctance to perform its given task. It's just clay, moldable, pliable, totally submissive to the will of its master. At times, we exceedingly announce to God, I've discovered my strengths and gifts, and now I know how I can serve you. At other times, we inform him, I am aware of what my weaknesses are, so I know which task I'm not capable of doing for you. Yet, this is not characteristic of clay, now is it? God is not limited to working with our strengths. Think about 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 through 10. He can mold us into whatever kind of instrument He requires. When God's assignment demands humility, He finds a servant willing to be humbled. When His work requires zeal, He looks for someone who He can fill with His Spirit. God uses holy vessels, so He finds those who will allow Him to remove their impurities. It is not a noble task being clay. There is no glamour to it, nothing boastworthy, except that it is exactly what the Almighty God is looking for. Compliant, moldable, yielded clay. If your tendency is to tell the Father what you can and cannot do for Him, submit to His agenda and allow Him to shape you into the person He wants you to be, just like clay. forgiven, in whom Christ Jesus we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin, Colossians chapter 1 verse 14. Forgiveness in the Bible is a release or a dismissal of something. The forgiveness we have in Christ involves the release of sinners from God's just penalty and the complete dismissal of all charges against us, according to Romans chapter 8 verse 1. Colossians chapter 1 verse 14 says that in God's beloved Son we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Amplified Bible translates the last phrase like this, the forgiveness of our sins and the cancellation of our sins penalty. God's gracious forgiveness of our sin is to be the measure of our gracious forgiveness of others according to Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32. This forgiveness of sin is at the heart of the gospel message 
of Matthew chapter 26, verse 28, Mark chapter 1, verse 4, Luke chapter 3, verse 3, and Luke chapter 24, verse 47. The earliest gospel preaching emphasized Jesus offering forgiveness of sins, according to Acts chapter 5, verse 31, Acts chapter 10, verse 43, Acts chapter 13, verse 38, Acts chapter 26, verse 18. Hebrews 9.22 reminds us that without the shedding of the blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Christ shed blood offers forgiveness to all who believe in him according to what is taught in John chapter 3 verse 16. Forgiveness is not granted because a person deserves to be forgiven. No one deserves to be forgiven. Forgiveness is a deliberate act of love, mercy, and grace. Forgiveness is a decision to not hold something against another person despite what he or she has done to you. Even Jesus forgives us, forgives our sins, forgives our trespasses, forgives our iniquities, forgives our transgressions, and they are erased, wiped out off the record. Forgiveness of sin is comparable to the financial debt being erased. When Jesus said, it is finished from the cross, according to John 19.30, he was literally saying to you and I, it is paid in full. Jesus took the punishment we deserved. So when God forgives us of our sins, we are free from those sins. We no longer live under that debt. Our sins are wiped out. God would never hold that sin against us, according to Psalms 103, verse 12. It is impossible to have salvation without forgiveness. Salvation is God's deliverance from the consequences of sin. God's salvation in Christ is the ultimate example of forgiveness. God promises that when we come to Him confessing our sin and asking for forgiveness, He freely grants it for the sake of Christ, according to 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. So, now that you are forgiven, now it's time to take the steps to forgive others. You know, we've got to acknowledge the pain. Sometimes it's hard to admit you've been hurt because doing so intensifies those feelings. But you won't be able to work through the pain until you admit you are hurting. Tears are a pretty good indicator that something's wrong. So are feelings of resentment. Think through the pain. Seriously, be honest about how you feel. Even if you think you shouldn't feel that way, Admit that you don't like what happened and how you were treated and that it makes you sad or angry. Try writing these feelings, if you will, in a journal or sharing them with a trusted Christian friend. Put yourself in the shoes of your offender. Think about a time when you have wronged another person, maybe your parents, a sibling, or a friend. You needed their forgiveness. Did that person extend forgiveness to you or withhold it? How did it make you feel? When it comes to forgiving others, remember that these words from Jesus, and remember them well, so in everything, 
do to others what you would have them do to you. Matthew chapter 7 verse 12. Remember that God forgave you. If you're a Christian, you've admitted your need for God's forgiveness. Remembering how he forgave you when you didn't deserve it. It can help you to forgive others. You may not be ready at this point to voice your forgiveness to your offender. In fact, communication with that person may be impossible if, for example, the person is no longer living. And that's okay. You can forgive someone without having your offender accept your forgiveness. Remember that God commands us to forgive. When Jesus taught about prayer, he stressed the importance of forgiving others. In Luke 11:14 and in Mark 11:25 he says, "If you hold anything against anyone, forgive them. Let go of the pain. Once you've gone through the stages that I've just shared, refuse to hold unto your hurt. Don't repay the offenses over and over, allowing yourself to get sad or angry again and again will only cause you more pain. Determine that you are going to choose to forgive your offender. Your emotions may not agree with your decision. This is where prayer comes in. Tell God you want to forgive. Ask Him to change your heart toward the person who wronged you. You may want to consider voicing forgiveness to your offender either vocally or through a letter. But again, if this isn't possible, it doesn't mean you haven't expressed forgiveness. Continue to forgive. If the wound was deep, you'll probably have to forgive more than once. When memories of the wrong come to mind and you find yourself getting worked up over it, immediately go to God in prayer. Pray for the one who hurt you. It may be impossible to restore a relationship with your offender. For example, you don't know where that person lives or contacting that person could be a safety risk. But you can pray for the one who hurts you. Ask God to reveal his love to your offender. Doing so will help you to realize any remaining resentment hidden deep inside. revelation. When there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. But happy is he who keeps the law. Proverbs 29 verse 18. The world operates on vision. God's people live by revelation. The world seeks grand and noble purposes and goals to achieve. People dream up the greatest and most satisfying things in which they can invest in their lives. Institutions establish goals and objectives and then organize themselves to achieve them. God's people function in a radically different way. Christians arrange their lives 
based upon the revelation of God, regardless of whether it makes sense to them. God does not ask for our opinion about what is best for our future, our family, our church, our country. He already knows. What God wants is to get the attention of his people and to reveal to us what is on his heart and what is his will for God's ways are not our ways. Words spoken of in Isaiah chapter 55 verses 8 through 9. Whenever people do not base their lives on God's revelation, they cast off restraint is what the scripture says. This is, they do what is right in their own eyes. They set their own goals, arrange their own agendas, and then pray for God's blessing. Some Christians are living far outside of the will of God, yet they have the audacity to pray and ask God to bless their efforts. The only way for you to know God's will is for Him to reveal it to you. You will never discover it on your own. When you hear from the Father, you have an immediate agenda for your life. Obedience is the key to a divine revelatory word from God. As the writer of Proverbs observed, happy is he who keeps the law. intimacy with God. Have you ever thought about God as daddy? Jesus did and the religious of the day wanted him dead for it. Because of this the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath but he was even calling God his own father making himself equal with God. Not only did Jesus upset the Jewish leaders because he extended fellowship and mercy by eating with sinners for violating Jewish scruples about the law, but what took them over the edge was his calling God Abba, as they will you if you take this stance, and we all should. Abba is the Aramaic word meaning daddy. It's a term of warm affection, intimacy, and respect for one's own father. And it is a term that should come from a heart changed by the hand of God in what is called being born again. Such a thought is repulsive to the religious minded. But such a saying speaks of you and I being the very image of God, God's sons and daughters, you and I standing eye to eye with God. Having this type of relationship with God will place you under attack by religion because they have made God into their likeness and understanding. But in truth, Jesus says that we can call God Abba. Galatians 4.6 says this, And because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. 
from the teachings of the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament, intimacy with and towards God is to be a way of life for the true born-again Christian. In 1 John 4.2, John uses two names, Jesus, which refers to his human name, and Christ, which refers to his divine title. From the teachings of the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament, intimacy with and towards God is to be a way of life for the true born-again Christian. It's like in 1 John 4.2, where we see John uses two names. He uses the name of Jesus, which refers to Jesus' human name, and Christ, which refers to his divine title. Jesus Christ is fully man and fully Messiah all at the same time. Christ, which means Messiah, the Anointed One, is his divine title. Jesus is God in human flesh, a fundamental doctrine of our faith that God stepped out of heaven and took upon human flesh. We call that the Incarnation. When we say that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, we mean that the Son of God took on a fleshy bodily form as spoken of in John 1.14. When Jesus Christ took upon himself humanity, when we say that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, we mean that the Son of God took on a fleshy bodily form as spoken of in John 1.14. When Jesus Christ took upon himself humanity, he did not take it while he was here on earth and just lay it aside when he went back to heaven. He took his humanity back to heaven with him. For all eternity, Jesus Christ will also be man. Jesus became fully human by taking on human flesh. Jesus conceived in the womb and was born, according to Luke 2.7. He experienced normal aging, according to Luke 2.40. He had natural physical needs, according to John 19.28, and human emotions, according to Matthew 26.38. He learned, according to Luke 2.52. He died a physical death, according to Luke 23.46. And he was resurrected with a physical body, according to Luke 24.39. Jesus was human in every way except for sin. He lived a completely sinless life, Hebrews 4.15. When Christ took on the form of a human, his nature did not change, but his position did. Jesus, in his original nature of God in spirit form, humbled himself by laying aside his glory and privileges, according to Philippians chapter 2, verses 6-8. through eight. God could never stop being God because he is what? Immutable, according to Hebrews 13.8. And infinite, if Jesus ended being fully God for even a split second, all life would die. Think about Acts 17.28. The doctrine of the Incarnation says that Jesus, while remaining God entirely, became man fully. Getting to know God begins at this level of intimacy, understanding Jesus' two natures, human and divine. They are inseparable in Psalms 139, verses 15 through 16. 
David declares that God's eyes were fixed on us not only when we were in the earliest stages of being formed in our mother's womb, but even before we were conceived. Think of it. Long before we were conceived, God already knew of us. And by faith, he could see us being conceived, formed, and born into this world. Meaning, there isn't a single human being on earth who was a surprise to God. And that includes you and I. Paul writes, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. He is saying that God looked and he saw us. And when God saw us, his voice echoed forth from heaven making this proclamation as found in Ezekiel 37:23, They would no longer defile themselves with their idols or with their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they will be my people. I will be their God. Our destinies, divinely sealed by God, and yet we have the option to refuse His offering. But upon our acceptance, we become separated by God from a lost and dying world as He calls us to be His own. To know this truth in our flesh, we must first understand who God is. Not a God of our own thinking, but by who He is. So let me introduce you to God by a few of his many names according to scripture. I am Elohim, meaning God as majestic ruler over all. I am El Shaddai, meaning God is almighty. I am Yahweh, is the name God uses when he comes to dwell among his people. I am Adonai, it designates God as owner and master. I am Pathir, a name that designates God as the Father of Jesus and the Father of those who follow Jesus. Five names leading you and I to Abba. The Aramaic word Abba appears three times in the New Testament, found in Mark 14.36, Romans 8.15, Galatians 4.6. When Jesus spoke of God as Father in Aramaic, he used the term Abba. It is a particularly remarkable name, and the, that intimate word for father, it indicates some of the very first syllables a baby might pronounce about his father. Something like daddy, papa, or even like dada. God the father of Jesus and his disciples, and you and I, is daddy. He is our papa. He is our dada. God is drawing people to himself and ha is becoming data to them. So let us not shrink from presenting him in this way. One reason the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news is that the God of the universe has come to seek us out and wants us to adopt us to live in close harmony with him. Let us make this known boldly to our world that is seeking real truth. God created you and I for a purpose, because you are enough, you're beautiful, you're wanted, you're chosen, you are called.